I'm going to turn to Mark chapter 4. We're still in Mark. We're still in Mark, okay? I don't, uh, I did not grow up in a tradition. I didn't grow up in church. When we did start going to church, we did not observe the pedagogical, this, this event. We didn't, serve, we didn't observe Easter. Very old school. It's very old school reformed. The old reformed churches, they threw away all church calendars as a form of idolatry. And so we didn't, I didn't know anything about Easter or Good Friday or anything. That was all just tossed away. And, uh, and historically, there are reasons for that. And uh, I think it's been good, though, in our time to go back to some of these things. They have pedagogical power. What do I mean by that? When I say they have pedagogical power, they have power to teach us. Now, uh, the church calendar is a great servant but a terrible master. Does that make sense? The church calendar is a great servant. It can serve us. It serves as reminder. It's it's like a goad. It can bring us back to certain subjects we might be avoiding. By the way, every preacher in every church has subjects they avoid. They have texts they don't read. They have things they don't want to talk about. They have spiritual skeletons in their closets. So, uh, this calendar, I want to talk about Easter, but I want to connect it. It connects perfectly with the next passage in our text. So, we're going to read this. This is one of the most famous stories in the synoptics. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I, 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 um, the Sea of Galilee is known for violent storms like of this nature. It's not unusual at all. Ancients, ancient, the ancients took the sea or any like large body of water as a symbol of death. Very, very common, very powerful. Ancient symbol. But this text is one of the most remarkable parts about it. This is distinctive to Mark. Is it bears all the grit. And Mark is gritty. Mark gives specific details that are absent in every other rendering of the story. This text is rude, it is aggressive, and it gives details unknown, I mean unusual detail. In fact, the mentioning of the pillow, is a, it's, it's only the only time it occurs in all the New Testament. It's an unusually specific word that is well attested outside the New Testament for a particular pillow that somebody would sit on who is operating this, the boat. The language, of the, uh, uh, the language is rough. The details are, he's the only one who mentions there are multiple boats. We're going to read this, and I want to, we're going to try to, I want to see, my goal today is, is that if God will lead us there, that he will excite a, hu- a hungry wonder. That he will excite a, a hunger for wonder in us as we hear about Christ conquering death. Okay, so I'm going to read this. Let's read the story. Uh, we're here in Mark. I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray for wisdom with it, and briefly for all of us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. 
But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him? Father, um, as I was as we were praying earlier in confession, sin, when that father cried out about his son, I believe help my unbelief, it hit me. You know, I, I as the preacher. There's unbelief everywhere around me, in me. Do I believe that this worship actually is going to touch people? Do I believe that you're going to be real in, these, in, our, in our time? Do I trust? It's as if we all have these varying levels of belief and unbelief, and they're always like, they're always moving. It feels like it's always, uh, it's always dynamic. Father, I, I'm trusting, I, I trust you, I I, I, I help, my, help our unbelief. But we do, we give it to you and we, we ask that for each person here, give them the measure of what they need in this moment to understand things and to get it and to see it and perceive it, to be, uh, to be woken up by it in Christ. Something mystical, beautiful, wonderful, uh, spiritual, transformative would happen. We pray because of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I was blessed with very argumentative sons, very argumentative sons, and since they're both here, they will both become sermon illustrations today. <laughs> and so, the, the gift of argument was uh, given to both of them by their mother. And so, that was a joke. You can laugh at that. You can laugh at that. It was, it was me. Uh, and so, one of the things you notice with children, this isn't peculiar to them, is... Um, if you scratch, if they, if they start asking a, a list of questions, they quickly, I'm talking in three to four questions, maybe five, can get the questions you can't answer anymore. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but kids will quickly, just by asking the why question, it's annoying, because sometimes it's designed to challenge your authority, you know? You know, what, well, we can't go there today. Why? Well, because I said so. Why? Well, because... Uh, because I'm the boss. Why? Because God made me the boss. Why? Because he's God. Why? You know, it's like, you know, and it, but it's funny. Just those little scratches, those little scratches expose, and in a sense, they open up the question very quickly, in almost no time at all, three or four questions of why, you're already at ultimate questions about everything. Does that make sense? You're down to bare bones. Why are things the way they are? You're down to the, the core questions about why everybody thinks about, about existence. Children are natural-born philosophers. They're automatically asking ultimate questions. And, and I, it, what's, what's, what, what hits me about that is the, um, 
is, is way, when we're, we're, we're kind of approaching this story, the story of this, of, of, the, of Christ's power, let's say, in space and time to change weather and, and the, weather, the weather God kind of picture, and this, or the picture of the resurrection from the dead, that in this moment, we're, it's so close to the surface, though, these questions, like what is that? There's a longing that's being scratched at. There's a longing and a yearning. And that's where we began today in the ancient book of Job and his yearning. How my heart yearns within me. We are a people with a burning longing to make sense of our world, to experience joy and wonder. It's just, it's how my heart, it's just there. It's right there all the time. Hey, I think we, 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 and when we scratch it, and when we begin to itch it, and when we begin to try to find it, find a sense of wonder, we get, try to get at it, uh, we're, we're, we're touching something eternal. This is that expression from Ecclesiastes, that he's put eternity in the heart of man. Inside of us, there is something greater than we know how to ex- express. C.S. Lewis described his brother bringing a little tin. C.S. Lewis is a great novelist and literary, literary critic and theologian, actually. <clears throat> he described his brother bringing in a little tin there was a garden tin, and he had made a little garden in the tin, and he brought it into the nursery, their children. And he was a little, little bit older, a little bit older. And um, C.S. Lewis later smelled some flowers, many, many years later, smelled some flowers. And he remembered being a little kid with his brother in the nursery with the little tin. And I don't know if this ever happened to you, where all your desire, like something you remember, some precious memory, and all it excites in you, this hunger, like a longing, a desire, a, ro- a romantic desire maybe, you know, some desire for a, some, some joyful memory you had, some, some place of peace and contentment, some, and all that longing. Um, and what Lewis says is, this hunger for wonder, oh look, I've got purple for Easter. That's the right color. I got rebuked for not wearing purple today. Uh, but it's a mild one. I don't really, didn't take it personally. So a hunger for wonder, a hunger for wonder. And what he was saying is between you and the things you want, and maybe it's romance, and maybe it's peace, or maybe it's experience of beauty, or maybe it's of winning. These are all very powerful, powerful events. And in them is a longing. And what he said is this desire here, this longing itself, this desire here is where we touch everything we're meant to be, and it's, it's right under the surface of these things we enjoy. Now, what we do is we turn to romance and peace and beauty and winning, and we think that longing is satisfied there, not understanding that we're scratching at our hunger for God. We're scratching at something much deeper. And when we make all of these things our longing themselves, we miss the eternal wonder that we're really hungry for. And we all know this happens all the time because no sooner do you order from Amazon and get it, but you don't want it anymore. Right? No sooner have you, you know, no sooner have you gotten high or gotten drunk than you get up the next morning and you're like, why did I do that? Why did I waste that? Why did I say that? Why did I? No, sooner are you, no, no sooner are you grabbing but losing. 
No sooner are you holding on tightly, but it's going through your fingers. You're getting the new job, the new promotion, the new place, the new city. And as you, as you seem to bite into the peach, you, can, you, can, you feel the niggle of a worm. There's a worm there already. Because we mistake the hunger that this, what, uh, what one of the great thinkers called a God-shaped vacuum that sits in the soul. And that vacuum, that hunger for God is confused by death. It is confused by its lostness. It's confused by its experience and how all of these good things, romance, peace, beauty, winning, feeling good, climbing, we were climbing yesterday, victory of getting to the top. And all those things were, they didn't, they just hinted. They hinted at something else. You know, uh, the poetry of Job is so powerful. No, no, one of the places we always are so hungry to experience some joy is when we face death in the family. And uh, that's why we have flowers at a funeral. <laughs> Something, you know. That, uh, there's a hunger for wonder. But we are terrorized. Terrorized by dread. They're terrorized by dread. Um, that's, let's go to the story. Let's read the story together and we'll see what I'm talking about. I said it was a first-hand account. There are storms that come out of the sweet squalls that come into the Sea of Galilee. Christ has been teaching all day. He's exhausted. He's very tired. He's asleep in the boat. Uh, have you ever seen Rembrandt's picture? I, if I had had a projector, I would put Rembrandt's picture up. Rembrandt's picture is wonderful. Rembrandt captures all the different... They, they, a lot of them were sailors, so they knew what they were doing. They, these, were not, these were not easily ruffled men. They had been through squalls. You know, if, 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 you know, it doesn't take much to scare me in a boat. I don't know about you. It doesn't take a whole lot for me to get will-wigged out in a big, even a big boat. But these were professionals. These were men who sailed when they first start, learned how to walk. So anyway, that in, in Rembrandt's picture, the, the, the boat is, is up on its side, about a 45-degree angle. There's one guy up on the mast. There's another guy down with his oar in the sea, and everybody's got a look of consternation or concentration or fear and despair. And everybody is going every, You can actually look it up on your phone if you're bored. And, and you can see, look up Rembrandt, uh, Sea of Galilee. Anyway, so... Yeah, the, and it's a great... And then, right in the center... His face kind of gently shining with just the way only a master can paint it. He just kind of woke up. Like he's not, he's not even like quite sure what's going on yet. That fresh face, and they're all like, the two are grabbing him like that. And he, and the Greek is rude. You can't even capture. It's, don't you care? What? Hey, we're, 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 we're going down. And they're yelling. And they're, do you notice when the disciples arouse him? They're not asking him for help either. They're not asking for any help. It's pretty much like, hey, there's a 12 of us trying to get the water out of the boat. Why don't you get up and do something? It's that rude. <laughs> the Aramaic, it, it, it buried in it. It's, this is Greek, the, the original. The ancient language is Aramaic. You can, you can hear some Aramaic. It is that violent. They are unhappy. They are angry. They are frustrated. And they are faced with, and then again, not to over-romanticize it, sailors, when a sailor says we're about to die, it means it's, it's really going down, right, Johnny? 
I mean, if they're saying that in the ocean, they know it's over. They're not messing around anymore. Um, the, uh, I told you about the seat cushion and they get them up. Then he says, you can't capture this in English. We don't have a voice for this in English. This is the perfect passive um, imperative. In other words, it's the strongest voice you can have in the Greek language for an imperative. It's more, the best translated like this. Christ is saying, you will be calm. <laughs> That's what he says to the ocean. <laughs> you, will have be done, you will have been done now. Like that. That's like the perfect passive. Does that make sense? Anybody know their grammar? Perfect passive imperative. <laughs> you will be done. And now this is where this is where people talk about this feeling so firsthand because the rudeness of the disciples and the, the way Christ's imperative happens and the immediacy. Things gotta stop. And uh, one of the oddest things too, there's no calmness like a calm sea, isn't there? Conversely, as violent or as scary as it can be, there's no peace like the mirror, like water when it's a mirror. And nothing's happening. And then he tells them off. <laughs> he rebukes them. The word rebukes used for the wind and the waves. It's used for the disciples. And, and, and it, you notice they don't, they don't even, they don't even like, they don't, they don't say thank you. They, words go on. And it's not even, I, I don't get the, the impression when it says great fear. Great fear doesn't mean, it, there's nothing really positive in that emotion. Does that make sense? This is a negative emotion. This is a, oh my goodness, who the, ah, you know. It's that, it's that great fear, it's that adrenaline rush right after a car almost hits you. That kind of feeling. But you're not sure, like, if it's the car and you might have just been hit by a bus too. Like, that's what this, like, they're experiencing. Like, as they didn't get hit by a car, they heard a bus go back by and they go, you know, what just happened? Who were, we thought we were in danger on the ocean. Are we in danger in the boat now? I mean, that's, that's, this is scary. Something has happened. Did you notice uh, in the narrative, I, I noticed it in a peculiar way I haven't before as I was constructing the, uh, the worship, how many times it talks about confusion and fear in the resurrection story. They didn't believe him. They don't believe Oh, we're scared. They, they don't believe the women. This is a classic problem, right? You know who is the first, the, first, the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection are women. They're given this wonderful place of privilege. And what's the first thing that all the men do? Yeah, whatever. They're confused even after they've seen him. They're confused again when they do see him. They think he's a ghost. They think he's haunting them. They think... And the confusion, the amount, of, the amount of bewilderment. And they are terrorized by dread. They had tasted wonder. And they had begun to wonder who this person was. They had begun to believe he was the Messiah. This ancient prophesied person who would rescue the Jewish people. Who was anticipated for generations. But now they were terrorized by dread and confusion. Why, why, why does the text go so far? 
Why do you think these stories, and I want to tell you this, there's a craft to these stories. Why do they go so far to telling you how much they didn't get it? Because we don't get it. Peter, Peter's behind this text, I think. And Peter's being like, he's being a warm friend. He's like, look, I was so clueless. I was so scared. I didn't, I fundamentally missed the whole point of who this person was, what he could do, even when I saw it. Even when I scolded him. Even when I told him off. And I was totally, and, and, and so, because what does dread do? What does, what does the terror of dread and the terror of death and confusion, what does it do? It shrinks your attention span down to a, a look. Uh, so, you forget everything. Uh, ATP, uh, what's it, uh, is it, what's it the, uh, lactic acid builds up in the muscle. Fight or fright, they, we've studied this extensively now. The fight or flight, uh, uh, you become a binary creature, right? You, you stop thinking about options. You don't imagine. Your w- hunger for wonder doesn't even come to your brain. It's like, do I fight or do I run? And by the way, they can't run in the boat, so what are they doing? <laughs> they can't run, right? So they're yelling at Jesus. Can't get away. They're angry. Fight or flight. All, and, and lactic acid and fear and adrenaline are pumping and pumping. I'm going to die. And everything shrinks down a little. So this is really kind of funny. We were, at, we were in a little, there's man-made lakes up in North Georgia that are really beautiful. And uh, they're owned by Georgia Power. They're dammed in order to create electric for northern, uh, northern state of Georgia. Nick Saban's on this one lake, and it's like a real big, you know, uh, uh, big haunt of famous southern people that I don't really know that much about, even though I live there. And uh, something to do with football, though. It's always something to do with football in the south. So, we're on a lake, and uh, this man we've become very close to was a leader in Atlanta and did not believe, not share my faith convictions at all, strongly doubted. I was always curious. And um, we were out on the lake, and he let me have access to his boathouse, everything. We just opened his heart and life to it. And one thing better than ha- owning a lake house is having a friend who owns a lake house, right? <laughs> the better proposition. We were out on the lake. Sunny day. Motor cuts out. Motor comes, cuts out. And I really don't know anything about what I'm supposed to do or anything. Were you with us that day, Ian, when the storm came down and we had to pull the boat over? There's a storm comes down over the mountain. Now, let me tell you what the storm was like. The wind was blowing about four or five miles an hour. <laughs> it was raining, though, if you, like, really strain to feel it. And... There was, I swear to you, a flash of lightning somewhere at some point. Ah, this is the weird thing. The entire boat melted down. We, we all like lost it. Like we all, we all panicked. We're like, and, 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 and a guy, one of my best friends I led to Christ, Curtis, he's, he's out there and we don't know anything about, I'm like, I gotta, we gotta go to the lake, we're gonna die. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. My wife is having a fit. 
She is furious. The boat's on. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I, we're out there with one little paddle and a, a speech, trying to paddle on the side, trying to pull it onto the, pull it onto the shore. We're, I don't even know who these people are. We're pulling up to some big mansion we don't even know about. And, we're, and I mean, we're literally, I'm racing the clock. I'm racing the And I, okay, all this happens. This friend of mine uh, who had been an atheist and an agnostic who had come to living faith. One of the most beautiful stories. We became, we're one of, one of my best friends. His name's Curtis. He came from a place of thinking I was a, he thought Christians were morons, generally. And, uh, and so uh, we get out of the boat and I turn to him. And I, he, had become, he had been a Christian for a little while now. And I look at him and I go, do you remember that story about the disciples on the lake? And he looks at me and goes, yeah. I said, good, because I completely forgot it for like 30 minutes. <laughs> like I forgot it had happened. Aren't, aren't we just like this? The crisis constricts my horizon. And what is your event? What's your horizon for what's going to happen in your life? It's right here, right? It's about a day, the next four hours, the next 24 hours, and I can't see what's going to happen. And panic mode is pounding. We are terrorized by dread. And the longing that hinted there's something greater, and now, of course, terrorized by dread, we start turning to romance and peace and beauty and winning or anything to, to, to dull our dread because wonder doesn't cut it. Now, this, is, this becomes a battle here. We will live our whole lives until we meet Christ. And he starts to set us free. The reason I'm so attracted to this is an Easter sermon, an Easter text is the way that Christ uh, penetrates this world, space and time. This, this first-hand narrative is meant to say that Christ has penetrated space and time with his power, with his presence and his promises. And I, well, I'm hoping today that you will, you will renew, your hearts will be renewed with a with a, with a sense of wonder. Maybe a sense of wonder just begin. Or maybe it'll begin to grow. And you'll cry out with me, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's look at his promise. It's an old saint said this to me years ago, and I remember the first time it was said, why does Christ tell off the disciples? Why does he rebuke them? It's an old, it's an old preaching saw, and it's a beautiful one. Why are the disciples at fault when as sailors they knew they were going to die? You know what the assumption of the text is? What did Jesus tell them they were going to do in the beginning of the story? What does he say? What does Jesus say in the beginning of the story? Let's go to the other side. And what's, why is Christ impatient with them? I told you we were going to the other side. What in the world are you worried about? If I said, we're crossing this ocean, we're crossing this ocean, and you are in profound error for having believed for one moment I was not upon a throne as the Son of God. You see, Christ lives in a very present awareness of being clothed with divine majesty and authority. 
And we miss it. We don't see it. They don't see it. We're, we're slow to see it. Or, or we're, we're realizing we're struggling with unbelief. Or we're, we're wondering, maybe you've actually you heard this today. As you heard this story, you thought, oh, this has a wonderful mythic power. Is he going to talk about what sort of mythic power this story has to inspire us about how God can be present in the midst of great difficulty? No, I don't care if it has any mythic power. I'm not interested in mining the story for some sort of truism about reality. No, in fact, I will agree with the author. I will agree with the presuppositions of the story itself. And that is, Christ has known, I control the molecules and atoms, and I control all things, for I made all things. That's the assumption of the text. And that's why he's telling them off. How do we live? How do we have the Christ's presence penetrate us? Living with pro- living, really living on promises. I am coming out here, coming out here to move to San Francisco and seeing just uh, how di- it's difficult to plant a church in San Francisco. I left a, a, a work that God blessed in Atlanta, and I've just seen my family go into enormous crisis and my personal life just, just falling. And I'm, and I'm reminded of an old, an old story in the Old Testament where the people of God asked, God, did you take us out in the desert to kill us? <laughs> Did you? I, I like what one quote I heard. H- honey, it was from some stupid movie. Uh, if God wanted to shoot you, he wouldn't miss. If God wanted to shoot you, it's not like he could miss. And there's a picture here that, you know, I... Are we going to live with the idea that his words and his promises can penetrate space and time with power? That's the first thing. His promise is resurrection from the dead. He will take that which does not live and make it live. And this is what he does spiritually. This is what he does physically. This is what he does with he makes all things new. And there's a promise in all of his, and there's a promise in all of his promises. And his picture, we were talking about this this week, weren't we, Adele? And we were talking about, you know, how do you live in a way that lives in hope as life crushes you, as you're terrorized by dread? How do you live in wonder? And we realize that in Peter, for example, that there is promise after promise, taking promise after promise. Look, you see, if God has spoken, these promises are real, then all these wonderful things are constantly being promised, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of when life doesn't have meaning. Promises are being constant. And we, honestly, you ought to assault yourself with promises. There's, um, there's an old proportion. You know, a lot of us are perfectionists and we look at our flaws and we look at the things we did wrong or sometimes we look at all the things other people are doing wrong. Some of us have a gift for this, right? And I have a gift for it too. And we, or we look at all the things we failed to do. It's very quick to see in the scriptures that for every one look at your failure, take 10 looks at his promises. Get your proportions right. He said, we're going to go to the other side. We're going on the other side. Stop worrying. I love that. So the second, uh, second thing is talk about is, is power. Uh, so there's the promise and there's the power. Can he really do these things? And does he? Uh, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, we live in such a, an age of cynicism. Some of us are cynics. Some of us are skeptics. Uh, I like to differentiate between cynics and skeptics. Uh, skeptics I take to be honest inquirers who refuse to accept my premises or my conclusions until they're they're proven. In other words, they're going to engage. They're going to say, look, I'm critical. Give it back. I don't think that happened. I don't think it's possible. Let's talk. 
That's honest, and I like that. That's honest. That has intellectual integrity. It doesn't defeat the story simply because it doesn't defeat the story, reject the story out of hand. But what I don't have patience for are cynics. For a cynic comes from the word for dog. And they're the ones who are snapping just to snap. Because they don't believe in anything anymore. Because they have exhausted in their hunger for wonder. And their terror for dread has consumed them. And they're just angry at the loss between the two. And they're bitter. And often the worst cynics are people who grew up in some sort of faith situation. And didn't find it satisfying. And it didn't work out the way they wanted. And they're no longer convinced. They no longer live with a reality of God's power as something living in the world. And that is one of the reasons why you see every week we pray for requests by name. You know why? It's, it's for those who think they believe but don't really believe anymore. <laughs> I'm serious. And Nellis shared this. Others, people are seeing, people are coming into our community seeing that God is still living. It is always Christ in the present tense. <laughs> Christ is risen. And so I would engage you, and I would, thrill, I would be thrilled to go, go back with you over real prayer requests, things asked for. Why not? You don't believe me? I'm dead serious. I'll put it down the throw down the gauntlet this morning. Why not? It's Easter. Bring me a challenge for prayer. If God says no to you, I don't really care. He probably says no to you because you needed somebody to say no to you because you don't know how to say no to yourself. But I'll tell you this. I have seen our Father honor the reality of his presence just because a hungry soul wanted to know that something was real. <laughs> Test me in this. This is a one-time offer. No, it's not. I'll do it again. <laughs> but take it up with me when I'm speaking by the Spirit because it might, it might be something for you. But we ought to be testing this power in some ways. Really asking for Christ to put it on the line. If he is this person in the boat, if he is this master of the sea and the waves, finally it's his presence. Penetrating space and time. Oh. What's the, what, notice how the story ends. It's very intentional and it's rhetorical. This is written as a journeyman's gospel. People have no idea or context or encounter with Christianity or Christ. Peter is going forward telling people that a man has risen from the dead and people are going, no, he hasn't. And they're going, yes, yes he has. Like, no, he hasn't. And he's like, yes, he has. And he goes back and he tells these stories. And John Mark records them. That's why we have all these firsthand witness kind of accounts in Mark and its immediacy and it's the vigor of its writing and prose and its grammatical style and even language choice. And so this is the gospel going out very first, very fresh, very early, very early in the existence of the church. Now, people are going, I have a hard time believing this. So Peter writes down there, so did I. <laughs> and then it's like you can almost see it. And he said, and in fact, you know what? As we knew, grew to knew him, we did not suspect who he was. It tells a story like this. We didn't get it. We were in a boat together, and as it was swamped, he got up and told us off for being upset, for even being afraid. And we realized, we started talking to each other that day. We were whispering in the back of the boat because we didn't want him to hear us. And, you know, gosh, if he stills the wind and the waves, and, well, wait till he's asleep. Cause, uh, did, did, where did he see he was from? Do you know? Have you ever met his parents? This is freaking me out, man. Do you get it? And he asked the question, what did they begin to ask? What did they begin to talk about themselves? Who the heck is this? We didn't know. You know what I would hope for today? 
for those who have known Christ a long time and known him, quote, religiously and only as a religion, would ask again, do I really know this? Who is this person? Do I know, do I know, or can I pretend to know about a God, man, the son of God? Because if the, if he really is this person, then it simply follows that if such a person did exist, that he could in fact rise from death, that all that, and that, that rising from death could be made, what? Like, walk into it with new curiosity. Religion won't save you. The living Christ will. You know? You know, I'm laying a little secret. Christianity as a religious system is a moral, spiritual disaster. And when Mark said it was the opiate of the masses, he was dead right. That's what religions always are. They're a way of getting the terror of dread dulled enough so people hope for something else. Ah. But the living Christ is a whole other matter. I had something else I was going to say. Oh, and again, who is this? They're whispering in the back of the boat. Maybe you're one of the people in the back of the boat going, um, I, really thought, I really thought this was going to be a little bit more chill. I really thought this was going to be, I thought this was just a guy. I really thought this was a, just a, a clever guy. He's a good storyteller. He's a good speaker. He? I really enjoy it. He does weird things too. And I know, yeah, I know he just... You know, maybe God's with them. And, I, and one of the guys is going, yeah, but, you know, we've, known a lot of, we've read a lot of stories about people who have been with God and have God. None of them control the weather, man. None of them control weather. Go back in the Old Testament. Nobody controls weather like that. It doesn't work. And maybe you're the person in the back of the boat, and that rhetorical question that Peter had in that story is aimed right at you. So you will ask her the question, you will ask your heart the question, and maybe it'll be a stone in your shoe for the next week or month or year or the rest of your life. You'll want to ask yourself, who is this person? Who is this person? Is he real? Did he rise from the dead? And if so, can I? And then maybe the answer will be something that'll blow this whole thing wide open, Right? It'll blow, up the, it'll blow this whole generation wide open with spiritual renewal, new spiritual life in our church, in our city. Let's pray. The idea <clears throat> that a God has walked the earth is just one, Father, it's just far-fetched in our generation. We, we make up these myths about Superman and Batman having fights, and we watch the fights, and... <sighs> We're exhausted by them. And we know we've created myths to uh, answer our terror of dread of there not being meaning in the world. We know, we know, we know. We're, we're, we're good myth makers, Father. You, you know it. But could it be that those myths were a part of our, our hunger, our longing to begin with for the one, something true and real, a God that would love and would be greater than space and time. 
Father, I give these mysteries to you, and I give my, my friends and my loved ones and all these visitors to you. We give our hearts to you, and we're going to go to a table of communion today in response to Easter joy and your rising from the dead. We're going to, we're going to celebrate this table, and I we give it to you, though. It's yours. And uh, I, they're yours. I am yours. We all together sigh in our hearts. We believe. Those of us who can say it will say it. But we can all say, help our unbelief. Thank you for your word today in Christ. Amen. If you'll look at communion, we have a call and response for why we celebrate communion. Why do we celebrate this meal? Jesus said to them, Boy, he certainly talks like somebody more than a man, doesn't he? His blood and his flesh have eternal life. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and broke it and saying, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. He did, did, did this to signify what in his body as the God-man he would accomplish. What's promised on the Lake of Galilee. Victory over the dread of death. Victory over death itself. The same way he also took a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. He did this to signify that his death would have a power. His death would have a moral, spiritual, forgiving power because he's this unique person. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, you're invited to the table. And you're invited to this table, the, the bread and the wine, if you struggle with unbelief. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? You're right in the boat. We're all in the same boat. Ah, I didn't even realize that, 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 that the joke was coming. Okay, we're all in the same boat, right? We really are. And, uh, and God's promise is for, is for people who are confused at times. Uh, we're going to read a statement of beliefs that we must assent to in order to take this table. Because I take this table to have something happening eternally, something happening mystically, something happening uh, by the power of the Spirit, something happening, igniting. I, I'm, I'm believing that we are eating and drinking with a God. Wow, you know, that's trippy. Yeah, it gets weirder. So if you know this God, even the smallest belief in this God that is kindled in your heart, this is your table. This is a table for sinners, ruined people, people who doubt. Ah, this table, though, if you're a skeptic or a cynic this morning, and you have decided I have not made my case adequately to your satisfaction, and that my belief system is not something you share, 
and you cannot assent to, the, to these things as true, then I ask you to watch. I ask you to watch our rite, our ritual. Ask, I always ask you to be witnesses. Just watch and ask you. There's some prayers at the end you can read if you want, if you're bored. Uh, there's no embarrassment in this as you respect our, our, our tradition. Watch, though, and wonder. I would like you to play a little, uh, I'd like you to play a little uh, thought experiment with me. What is it like to believe that you eat and drink of a God with a God in his love? What's it like to believe in a God, I wonder? There's a third group, though, that I forbid from the table. This might come as a shock to you. There's a third group that I would forbid from the table. And if there's one thing that's clear in the scriptures, God died, Christ died, and Christ's love is for sinners. So if you think you're a good woman, if you imagine you're a good man, if you think you're a good person, you are not worthy of the table. The religiously good people of this world are not worthy. They have denied what the Son of God came to save, doubting sinners who put their trust in Him.